0: and thanks for joining the Think for Yourself podcast. Today's episode is the audio portion of a webinar conversation that Dr. Montramani hosted on August 25th, 2021 with Mike McCarthy. We hope you enjoy the discussion.
1: Well, thanks everybody for uh, listening in here. Uh, I am absolutely thrilled today to have not only a titan of the business world, but a dear personal friend and mentor, Mike McCarthy, uh, with me for this conversation. And uh, Mike has battle scars from every type of business situation you might imagine, uh, where he's successfully navigated uncertainty, which, as many of you know, is the theme for a lot of my work. Uh, So Mike's someone I turn to frequently for advice and guidance. Uh, So before we begin, however, um, oops, let me uh, get that going there. I think it was a, this summer has been a little uh, off in terms of frequency, but we had Charlene Wheelis, uh, who was actually the chief communications officer for for Bechtel, uh, one of the largest construction companies in the world. Uh, She wrote a book, told her personal story also about her battle with cancer, which had some uh, heart-wrenching moments, uh, but a really interesting conversation. Uh, Before that, I had Kevin Zinger. Uh, Kevin is a really fascinating entrepreneur who's been successful and virtually everything he touches. And his new thing is 3D printed supercars. Uh, but not only that, he's trying to reorient the whole business of manufacturing. His logic is manufacturing today is in an analog world, and he's designing digital manufacturing. Uh, and this is a step change function in how we make things, how much material we use, how we design things, etc. A fascinating conversation, which I'd encourage you to listen to if you haven't already. Uh, Before that I had Diane Hessen, a columnist for the Boston Globe. Uh, In this time of extreme polarization politically that is sort of happening across our country, Diane took a different stance. She said, actually, if you stop and talk to voters, and she did, uh, she talked to 500 of them over many years, we actually have a lot of common ground. It's we're not as dispersed as we think in terms of immigration, in terms of uh, you know foreign affairs, in terms of economic policy, etc. Uh, a really fascinating story, interesting book, and a worthwhile conversation to listen to. Uh, probably the most uh, impactful conversation I've had in this webinar series uh, on me personally was with a couple of Uyghur dissidents uh, who um, are a husband and wife team. The husband had just recently written a book called Menace. Talked about China's genocide in Western China slash Xinjiang, uh, or uh, as they refer to it, East Turkestan. So I'm not going to pass judgment on what you want to call the land, but the Chinese uh, genocide that's taking place there. A very disturbing set of uh, storylines and and facts, actually. Um, Bjorn Lomborg, before that, Bjorn, uh, famous uh, climate thought person. I wouldn't say climate skeptic um, because he believes in climate change. He thinks how we act around climate change and what we do about it is equally important and we shouldn't be so alarmist. Uh, Ed Grant Williams, financial commentator, dear personal friend, Before that, I had uh, Chad Foster, who went blind at the age of 20, talked a little bit about his experience and how he learned to find uh, uh, meaning in some of that, and and his dog as well, and began uh, with Mike Rogers, uh, former congressman, former chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He is the individual who went after Huawei. And so he decided that Huawei and 5G was going to be a surveillance battleground, and we need to think about this before we just install this stuff. Convince the UK, Canada, uh, New Zealand, and Australia to join the United States and not using it for security reasons. Um, and so, of course, this is all a series that was started to sell, support and promote my book, Think for Yourself. So there's your little advertisement. So now to the, uh, uh, to the real point of today, Mike. Mike, thanks hey, for joining me.
2: Hey, I'm glad to be part of a conversation with you, Vikram. Uh, We've had many interesting ones over the past few thanks. years.
1: Yeah, well, this is the fun part of a conversation with a friend and and someone who I know well, Mike, is we get to just talk, right? We get to talk about the fun stuff in the world. Um, So let's begin with a simple question. Mike, you're literally sitting at the top of corporate America on boardrooms. You're running a very successful investment business. You've got uh, charitable endeavors you're working on. You're sitting on nonprofit boards. You know, let's go back to little Mike. Little Mike uh, on the farm or wherever you are. Did you think this is where you were gonna go? Is this, was this the grand ambition or was there another path?
2: You know, it's interesting, Tritram, because one thing's always led to another, but uh, um, maybe kind of start with my first work, which was tarring roofs and then construction. But when I graduated from college uh, in 1973, um, with uh, long hair, a very bad beard, and a degree in medieval English I was destined for self-employment. I I can see that in retrospect. uh, (laughs) There's no way in hell I was going to get a job. Um, So I started in the construction business um, that morphed into a a real estate and an investment business which became uh, what's now our holding company with uh, the support of a lot of people and uh, I was reflecting with a friend of mine uh, whom you know well, uh, Gerald Timmerman. And we were talking about the three things, uh, some talent, some effort, and some luck. And he noted that maybe it's the bad luck you have in your 20s and 30s that are, are, is a really important luck, not the good luck. Um, and uh, so we've had a number of scars, but uh, we're still here and we're still enjoying life and enjoying the, the world of business.
1: Yeah, well, you're doing uh, a fabulous job at it, which is uh, which is great. And it does show that maybe some persistence and sort of, uh, you know, taking some knocks along the way, maybe there's a different way to view things, right? I mean, it, the, the challenge is actually the learnings uh, you learn from, from those as well.
2: You know, people that you and I know who read and uh, spend some time just in free range thinking uh, tend to do better over long periods of time, I think, even than the best and most nimble uh, uh, shorter-term actors. Yeah.
1: So, Mike, how about the idea of investing? That's a jump from Construction and sort of, you know, investing is a different kettle of fish, so to say, right? I mean, th- there's a different dynamic of supporting an entrepreneur and building, or taking a business that's growing and helping it accelerate or scale, or or what have you. Uh, where was that sort of thinking process? How do you jump from from there, from construction to 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 actually deploying risk capital, effectively?
2: Yeah, it, you know, I think first of all, investing only comes from excess, right? And one of the things I visit with uh, young entrepreneurs about who want to be investors is that, you know, first you have to be a saver. Um, People who are not savers never become successful investors. And so you have to generate excess uh, from whatever you're doing before you can become an investor. And then I think after that, it's, it's the compounding of capital that, that is so, uh, attractive to you know math heads like myself um, and uh, and it's exciting it's 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 just uh, a very interesting pursuit and um, when I found out in the construction business is that the the owners I was working for you know they were trying to create something that would generate not just a, a return of what they spent on on whatever I was building but a business that went with it, and and I found the business side of it more interesting than the actual construction side of it, and migrated that way.
1: Interesting, yeah. No, it's it's interesting. And in fact, some of what you're hinting at here, uh, that I think is responsible for just this real cluster of very successful uh, business leaders in the Midwest may have to do with sort of Midwestern values. You hint at it with you know, a culture of savings and investing, et cetera, uh, sort of a, a, a almost the frugality plus humility combined in this really interesting dynamic. Do you think there's anything to this idea of Midwestern values and sort of upbringing that make you a different investor? I,
2: I think there there is, and it's it has more to do with the agricultural base of the Midwest, which is probably becoming less and less prevalent as our uh, rural areas depopulate. But um, in agriculture, as you know very well, the real key is is survival, first of all. (laughs) Uh, And you have various commodity markets, and then you have the weather and um, just the vagaries of all of those combined uncontrollables that I think make you a prudent uh, investor, or, or at least humble, um, because you do understand that no matter how well you plan, um, you can have that hailstorm in August that wipes out an entire year's production um, and so forth. So um, I do think there is a foundation in, in agriculture, particularly that that uh, creates some some good foundations for being an investor.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's this sort of randomness, right? It's sort of an acknowledgement of randomness, right? It, just, it is.
2: <laughs> I mean, it, it's, uh, huh. yeah. And, and you, yeah, lots of things can go wrong on the way to the bank.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and sometimes do right exactly. <laughs> or often, <laughs> maybe it's a different word to put around it. Right. Uh, so, all right, Mike, let's let's change gears a little bit here um, and talk um, not only about sort of your investing experience, but some of the sort of transactional experiences that maybe isn't necessarily investing. There aren't lessons around investing per se, but for instance, your, your experience with Cabela's, which was very public and sort of there were some interactions here. My guess is you have a handful of lessons learned from that experience of merging with a public company and this other sort of dynamic that went on and shareholder votes and everything, which, you know, yes, it's sort of investing, but there's something else going on there. There's a transaction processing.
2: I think, I think I'd start that conversation uh, with where I started uh, in 1989, when I was asked by the two Cabella brothers to help them form an employee ownership group, which they gave 15% of the company to. Um, and the company was valued at that time at about $50 million, And ultimately, that 15% was worth about $700 million. Wow. Um, Now, ultimately, it was in 2017 when we merged our public company out of existence into a private sale to our competitor, Bass Pro Shops. Along the way, uh, we made some decisions um, to serve the families, which had very different objectives. One, a family with nine children, one, a lifelong bachelor, Mm -hmm. um, and so forth, that caused us to go public. And then because we were public, caused us as we should have to sell to the very highest bidder uh, in an auction process, um, which was bittersweet because the, the capital realization was excellent, but the devastation to a small town in Nebraska was, was troubling and is troubling. Um, but it, all the lessons of capitalism were there, both the strength and the weakness um, of the system uh, that we're all charged with prosecuting today. So uh, a lot of lessons learned. And, uh, you know, along the way, we built a $5 billion bank and and uh, um, had, you know, scores uh, equal to Nordstrom's and others in terms of customer service. And, and so it was a great experience um, and one I'm forever grateful for being part of.
1: Sure. So Mikey, I know you've, you've heard me talk a lot about the idea of a generalist being able to navigate uncertainty rather than a specialist. So I want to change gears quickly from an industry perspective, because I think we'll be able to tease out some common lessons here. So all right, that there's your sort of experience with retail, but also consumer finance because of the credit card and sort of the bank around that, et cetera. But you also got involved in some voting systems companies, right? That's a very different business.
2: it is. We we invested in a, uh, a bankrupt startup in 1987 that made a few um, scanners to count votes in small counties in the state of Nebraska. And today that company Election Systems and Software, which we still own, what, uh, 34 years later, um, counts about 50% of the votes in the United States in any given election. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the consistency is three things, really. The people that are managing those businesses um, have continually looked forward, right? So they're trying to anticipate the needs of the future consumer, whether it's business or government uh, or consumer. Um, they develop products continually. And we find that most entrepreneurs, at some point in their career, quit developing new products, often as a victim of their own success, right? They don't need to.
0: Um,
2: Both those organizations have continued to do that. They also find new markets, um, new adjacencies. They're looking beyond the horizon for what's next, and they're very competitive. And what we like to think of is that the numbers that flow out of that talent, um, the focus on product and the focus on markets always work and they always do as an investor unless you pay too much.
0: Mm-hmm. So if
2: you get the people, the products and the markets right, the investments are always good, you know, unless you over invest or put too much capital in the wrong place.
1: Yep. Yep. Interesting. Um, I, I have to take your, your bait, if you will,
2: Mike, <laughs> in terms yeah. of go with it.
1: Is now a good time to invest? You got, you got to think, I mean, it's always,
2: it's always a good time to invest. Uh, You know, the best investment today might be cash. People don't think of cash as an asset class. I do. Um, I pretend to think that, uh, you know, if you can buy something for half price every five years or so, you can get a really good return on cash. And uh, so I, I'm, I think that's an investment, um, an asset class that we need to think about. It yep. may or may not be the most appropriate one. Um, in many cases today, I think it is. Um, but as you would know, an overconcentration in that asset will also get us all in trouble. And and we're we're close to that now. I mean, there's an awful lot of liquidity sloshing around. Yep. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I've always felt if, if, if money's mispriced, it's misused.
2: <laughs> right? And so exactly. there's, yeah.
1: there's a little bit of that going on here, perhaps.
2: You know... For 40 years, we've watched interest rates come down my whole working career fundamentally. Um, and so I've been long for at least 20 uh, as to whether they would reverse. Yeah. I'm hoping to live long enough to be right half the time at this point. Uh, but we'll see. Um, at some point in time, it, it does seem like uh, uh, capital is, is mispriced today in terms of the uh, supposedly risk-free rate.
1: Yeah. Well, a lot of people say you used to go to treasuries for risk-free return, and maybe today you're going for return-free risk, right? I think that's right. accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, Mike, relating very clearly to this business uh, or to this logic of asset prices, interest rates, et cetera, it takes you to housing, uh, an area that you also know very well, uh, whether it's through your investing in the sort of greater mortgage sphere, um, or even just as a homeowner, I mean, I'm watching as a homeowner in my neighborhood and stuff and say, wait, this almost feels too good to be true. Uh, rice price is rising as rapidly as they are, et cetera. Is this a manifestation of that mispriced money? And A, how do you think this might be coming together, given your decades of experience watching, Mike? You
2: know, we invested in the uh, mortgage business at the beginning of uh, 2008 and that's now become our largest uh, single investment uh, public company, Guild Mortgage. Um, and what we found as we dug into it is that you can do a quality job of making loans to consumers that they can afford to pay back. I'm not sure that's true as we get into these higher prices where if there's a any kind of a, retreat in commodity prices, lumber, concrete, and so forth, that the house across the street might be built for less than you paid for your current house. So I think there's some commodity risk built into this market. There's a a false, perhaps, sense of of scarcity um, that we need to be concerned about. um, And it's exacerbated by very low cost capital. So there's plenty of risk uh, in in this market today. Uh, and, you know, the thing that keeps most people in housing is, is that you need to have a house. You know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, so, yeah, you can sell your house for a lot of money and then go buy one somewhere else for a lot of money. That really doesn't help uh, help anything. But, yeah. but, you know, I think I think we should be cautious about about. Uh, the valuations that we're seeing in, in some of these markets. Uh, uh, yeah. particularly, you know, some of these huge appreciations that may or may not be real.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things, and I think you and I have talked about this over the past few years, that sometimes the cure for high prices is high prices. It's high prices right? Yeah. <laughs> the cure for low prices is low price. Right. This may come from that sort of ag <laughs> logic. It's,
2: right? it's it's for sure true. You know, I think that yeah. makes
1: more corn is high corn prices, you know. That's it. <laughs> you want to get more corn motivated? There you go. Have a high price. Uh, all right. Well, you know, the other thing, like, and, and I'm going to try to segue into yet another area of your professional uh, activity sphere. Um, you can have corn in the middle of America, but you got to get corn out of America often. Right. For export markets. And for better or worse, the rails, another area you know very well, um, have played a role in movement of goods and services. And I'm going to broaden the question even wider, if you don't mind, Mike, which is we are in the midst, I think, of a major reorganization of global manufacturing, at least the geography of it. And by that, I mean, supply chains are shifting rapidly away from sort of these super long, by the way, carbon intensive uh, supply chains that start in Asia, meander their way wherever, eventually back to the US uh, or the end markets where these goods and services are being consumed. Um, and they're shortening and that's creating disruptions. It's creating shocks. It's creating supplies, uh, breakdowns, etc. Even right now, I mean, I read a Washington Post article here a couple of weeks ago. It said, oh, you know, Long Beach is backed up. 26,000 containers uh, held up. Air. You know, BNSF didn't send four mm-hmm. trains from Long Beach to Chicago. And that created a further backup. And yeah, I'm hearing about, as we all are, about the ports in China disrupted, shutting down congestion. Is this temporary? Is this going to fix itself? How do you think about it, given, again, the breadth of your perspective and your experience with one part of that, which is the rail business?
2: You know, I expect that we will get the uh, increased fluidity in the supply chain at, at some point in time. But one kind of counterpoint that, that is of interest to me is the motivation of the at least the ocean shippers to fix a problem where they're now getting $9,000 a container, <laughs> which was $2,000 a year ago, right? So. Yeah, they don't like to see the ships parked, but the cash that they're parking in the bank as a result of the ships being parked is pretty traumatic. And so that could slow down the the fluidity that, that we would hope we would gain in the system. I do think, as you point out, uh, Vikram, that um, there are some permanent shifts that will result from um, all of the forces that you mentioned. Um, and. I think the supply chains are going to get shorter. Um, the Union Pacific, where I'm on the board, has a, a, a an extensive network into Mexico, for example, um, that will be very, very uh, helpful if if there's a shorter supply chain there. And I'd suggest, without you know any any uh, inside information or any, any issues like that, that the current merger of the Canadian rails. Um, and uh, the KCS is accessing that market and and hooking those three markets, Canada, U.S., and Mexico together. So that's just an example in the rail industry of an attempt to shorten that supply chain. And we've already shortened the supply chain from the end of the warehouse into your home by, I don't know, some weeks, in some cases, and certainly days and days. I think 80% of America is pretty much uh, accessible within two days of almost any product now. So um, we've seen that end of the supply chain shorten up and I expect that could get better yet. So we'll see how this all pans out.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, one of the dynamics I was recently talking with a, a fellow academic about was how disruptive might 3D printing become? And the idea is, well, that's the ultimate form of decentralized manufacturing. We're going to manufacture in your house, Mike. You don't even need to get anything. So you just keep the raw materials around. And then if the raw materials around, we spool the whatever and print up what you need.
2: Yeah. Today, uh, there's, there's a lot of, uh, maintenance and, and technical knowledge needed to 3d manufacture anything of substance. So we'll see how that, uh, works out, but, uh, um, I'm also seeing some some great 3D product uh, that is decreasing the inventory. So sure, so we'll yeah. see how that that rolls out.
1: Yeah, it's it's unclear. It's going to be everything right. everywhere, right? But if you've got, you know, why do you have to keep six different cast iron parts for every backup? in case of every scenario at every single maintenance location everywhere. <laughs> maybe <Right>. you don't <laughs> maybe That's you don't. Right. Maybe the software yeah. could help there. Um so uh, interesting. Um I want to ask you the fun question that I know you've watched a bunch of these that I always get to stop and and sort of uh sort of interject about halfway through the conversation a question about favorite books, favorite miniseries, favorite movie. Uh, you know, Mike, I think during the pandemic where there were lots and lots of people watching these webinars live, I did a little survey at the end of it last December. And I said, what'd you like best? You know, we had these great businesses with doctors, we had others, politicians. You yeah, know, we really like the book suggestions and the movies recommendation. Might have been because of the pandemic and people were locked up, but I've stuck with it and people love them. So I'm curious, Mike, you and I read a lot. We share books. We send books to each other frequently. But um, I'm curious if you've got a favorite or most recommended book.
2: So before I talk about the the book I've I've found to be most helpful, uh, I'd have to confess, um, I didn't have a TV in my house for about 20 years. A couple of years ago, we remodeled. There's one there now, but I never look at it. Um, So I, I... I, I wouldn't know a mini-series from a, a mini-excavator, right? <laughs> uh, so, so, I'm not tuned into that. In terms of books, the best business book I've ever read was a book by uh, a Dutchman by the name of Ari van Juice, Uh and he wrote a book called The Living Company. Hmm. He was the head of planning for Royal Dutch Shell. and He talked about, and this book's probably 25 or 30 years old, um, the need to build a culture that makes us aware of possibilities and, to your point, aware of variations. And, you know, if we don't have openness in our cultures, we're not going to succeed long-term. We might be very focused and be very successful short-term. But anyway, it's a great book uh, uh, called The Living Company. Uh, best book, I, best business book I've read for sure.
1: It's very interesting. I, I literally, because I, as you know, I teach this class at Harvard on, and I, we touch on navigating uncertainty scenario planning. And I was literally today going through The yeah. Art of the Long View," which is by Peter Schwartz, who was in part of that planning group. I think he was a little junior at the time and then later started this whole thing. So yeah. uh, theme, I mean, it's amazing that that planning group at Royal Dutch Shell produced such amazing right. scenario thinkers, if you will. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, when you've been around for three or 400 years, it helps you.
1: <laughs> it helps you give, it. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's turn to some bigger topics, Mike. You hinted earlier about learning about lessons of capitalism, the good, the bad, with the Cabela's experience. Uh, and I'm going to ask the question of you this way, which is, I think, you know, as a friend, I feel it's okay, I can ask it to you, yeah. This, which is, Mike, was Karl Marx right Here's the question, and I'm gonna phrase it this way. Marx said capitalism would self-destruct. The return on labor would get pinched. The return on capital would compound. Those with would get better and better and better. Those without would struggle, struggle, struggle. Eventually, you generate that social unrest impetus, overthrow the bonds, get rid of those in control, reset, in fact, Marx and Engels explicitly state from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. That's redistribution. That's sort of a rewrite of the system. I live, as you know, in Massachusetts, at least until this week, and then I'll be a New Hampshire resident. But as of now, I'm, I'm, I'm in Massachusetts. Um, my senator here, Elizabeth Warren, has suggested a wealth tax is that not going in this direction of taking from and giving to?
2: So I think- oh, Long I think, question,
1: sorry. <laughs> I
2: think to broaden, to broaden your long question a little bit, yeah. there's a pretty active debate right now about stakeholder capitalism. And ESG plays part of that. DE&I plays part of that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. What's the purpose of the corporation? And, and, and so forth. I'm a skeptic as to whether we can make um, that thinking part of our focus on shareholder returns. I'm also a believer that if we focus on our stakeholders, our employees, our communities, um, our vendors, that we will have a better system than one that's just simply focused on short-term profits. So I'm going to say that Marx was right to a point that any system, any ism taken to its extreme becomes fundamentalism, which almost by definition will be destroyed or or will self-destruct. And that's whether it's it's in almost any field. you know, religion, politics, finance, fill in the blank. Yeah. So I think there's some risk, Vikram, but I, I also have great confidence in America particularly, um, at overcoming its its uh, extremism <laughs> and, and, and getting back to a, a, a continuously productive uh, society. There there is a a a point where entitlement destroys some of the initiatives. Um, and from a financial perspective, that's an equal threat from my point of view as um, the accumulation of wealth or the concentration of wealth, which is also a problem. I mean, uh, so there's, a, there's some balance that's going on there that, that needs to get sorted out and will. I'm confident, highly confident that it will get sorted out.
1: Well, you know, it's very interesting, and there are reasons why it's not as alarming as it might sound, but, you know, Mitt Romney, again, was for a period of time a a local here for me, Um, you know, got crucified for saying 40 whatever percent of voters pay zero in taxes. And right. if you got to 50, what does that mean for entitlements? Where does it go? Et cetera. Now you need it 50 evenly spread at every district everywhere. So it's I don't think it's a, a short-term alarming and uh, problem per se. But he hinted at something that's very disturbing.
2: <laughs> right. You know, the it it seems that the the taxes like a wealth tax, uh, which is really confiscation of property. Um, it, it It is so antithetical to how we built companies. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think some of the things I'm most proudest of uh, are the companies we've helped finance, which have now employed, you know, hundreds and thousands of people uh, so that they can feed their families and send their kids to college and so forth. So...
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I look, it's interesting because I have felt, and I want to get your reaction to this because it raises a separate topic, Mike. But you know, you're right, everybody's framed it as shareholder versus stakeholder, the cover of The Economist, Fortune, the purpose of a business, the business roundtable, what it, Larry Fink, purpose and profit, right? All of yeah. it, this was the framing. I think the framing's wrong. I think that's the wrong way to present it as a debate. I think it's fundamentally counterproductive to do so. Because at heart, what we're debating, I think, is short-termism versus long-termism. In the long term, if you don't take care of your community, you don't take care of your workers, you don't take care of your environment, you don't have a business.
2: You know, any product or service that doesn't create value for consumers whether they be business or individuals, eventually fails. Now, you can flim-flam your way for a while, um, but ultimately you have to create value. I I think within our system, it works great. Now, the globalization of that system has been pretty tough on America in some ways um, over the last, what, 20 years Mm -hmm. or 25 years, um, where we've had to, to confront lower labor costs and how that's impacted our uh, laborers. Um, So there's disruptions that are going to continually take place as you evolve through these uh, um, cycles. And I think there'll be more of, frankly.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, between globalization and what I think is perhaps a more serious structural challenge for the labor and, and sort of workforce of the world, technology, Mike, I mean, that was a double whammy that we got thrown for the labor, labor, if you will, right? I mean, it wasn't just the globalization dynamic. I'll give you an example. I, I spent some time with the folks at Kimberly-Clark and they, they had me speak at an event and I think it was the baby products business, et cetera. Anyway, at one point they had, I don't know, seven, eight factories around the US employing five, 600 per factory or some I'm round numbers and they produced X. Well, today they produce three X with one third the people and I think half the number of factories or some something like that. That wasn't globalization that hurt those workers. That was something else. All
2: right. Yeah, you've got you've got technology impact in it, but I I provide a counterexample where the consumers in China were buying baby formula from the United States because they trusted it. Right. So we can control our own destiny to the extent that we create value real value over and above cost for the, the businesses and, and the individuals that consume uh, products. And uh, um, that's, that's a pretty dramatic example of where lowest cost isn't going to end up being the biggest victory, regardless of how much technology you provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that, you know for example, uh, self-driving trucks or fleeted trucks running on publicly uh, funded infrastructure, that's a threat to the rail industry, right, where the infrastructure is private. And, um, uh, you know, the the biggest current cost advantage is the ability to move freight over long periods at lower cost because of lower labor input in the movement of that freight. So we'll see. I mean, uh, uh, but I, I actually, you know, favor um, not trying to stand in the way of, um, you know, ingenuity. Um, uh, it's just, no society has been very successful at defeating it.
1: <laughs> That's right. It's a genie you can't put back in that bottle. <laughs> That's right. It's, uh, so, but, but relating to that, Mike, the short termism that I was trying to hint at, how do you think that manifests in our society and our business world and how do you, I mean, look, you're in businesses and you're involved, it's stunning. Like 30 something years you're holding it. I mean, how many people do that these days? Very few.
2: You know, it's, it, it, it's, it's really troubling to me because most of the returns we've generated in our private investments have been a combination of three things. First of all, lack of liquidity, So there's a risk that we can hopefully generate higher return from taking. Mm -hmm. Second, longevity. So our average hold, even in our private equity business, is is like between eight and nine years.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And finally, concentration. Um, And short-termism has been rewarded recently, whether you're flipping houses or flipping companies. Because of the availability of huge amounts of debt, that has made it possible to generate very high IRRs on equity, even though, you know, Value. It, it isn't that the margins can be tiny and, and even ephemeral. Yep. So I, I, I suspect there'll be a correction um, that will leave. The, the short-term investors are um, highly disappointed if they haven't built a quality business that has pricing power, especially in an inflationary environment. Yep. Um, and you know, we got a lot of businesses trading hands today that don't generate cash. Um, we got a lot of businesses that don't really have a lot of pricing power. In fact, they expect to have lower prices over time. Yeah, um, and you know, finally they have a lot of debt. That seems like a bad combination to me, um, yeah. but it's been a highly profitable combination in the short term. Yeah,
1: yeah. All right. So you so you opened the can of worms, which you, we knew was going to get opened. You said the word inflation, Mike. We gotta talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, inflation, deflation, the dynamics. You talked about both actually here just recently. You sort of said price is coming down in some industries. A lot of people expect my flat screen TV better be bigger, better be crisper, better be faster, better be smarter next year for the same or less money. And so there is a, a consumer expectation in certain areas of consistent pressure downward. And yet here we are, you look, you open the newspaper, you open the magazines, you read and you're seeing inflation, inflation, inflation everywhere. How do I make sense of this?
2: Well, I think, I think, you know, the argument is um, whether this is temporary or, or not is one of the questions. And, and you didn't live this long ago, but, I can still remember the wage price freezes in the Nixon administration and uh, the price spiral that came through the uh, Carter administration and and led me to borrow money for 20% thinking that was rational, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, primarily it was about there. So Mm -hmm. it didn't get out of control. And, you know, I noticed that Tyson Industries or Tyson Foods, which is, been highly profitable because there's an excess amount of supply in the meat industry and there's huge consumer demand as people uh, went to cooking from home and so forth. And their margins expanded by some multiple of what they were previously. They've increased starting wages from about 1370 to 1920 and maybe even 20 bucks. I don't see that reversing. So there's Increasingly some permanent changes here, I think, in our cost of goods um, that are going to drive future inflation. Um, and I'm I'm a skeptic as to you know whether we can put the genie back in the bottle to use something you said earlier. Yeah. And and how long that might take and and where we might end up before we react. Um, yeah. So we'll see. But yeah. but it's a risk for sure, for sure.
1: Yeah. Well, Mike, let me let me push back a little bit and get your reaction this way. Okay. so they raised wages, let's say, to 20 bucks and the meat demand was strong. And so they were able to raise prices. But now we're at a new level. It's not inflationary if we take a step function up and stay at that new level indefinitely. Now we're back to where we were without inflation. Right.
2: I guess that's right.
1: Just yeah, mathematically, right? <laughs> if you think about it, like I gave you a one time raise, we doubled your wages. Great, you're at wow. twenty bucks an hour. Okay, agreed. All wage data is going to show inflation of a hundred percent for that period of time. Next year, we're doing year over year inflation, at least that's generally how it reports. It
2: been some zero. It, but but it is a cumulative effect. And and <laughs>
0: and
2: if I start paying more for my house and and paying more for my used car because I got more. Cash flow, you can get into a wage price oh, yeah.
1: spiral. That's I mean, the worry. Pretty, yeah, I it's think
2: pretty dangerous.
1: I think that you're right is the worry. That's what keep the central banker. That's what keeps the central bankers up at night. Which is not just that you got the new wages, you got yeah. the new wages, but then you went and you spent it, and you outbid Mike on that used car that was on the lot for. 17.7 you paid 18.3 because mike right. wanted he wanted it more and then right. mike went back to his boss and said god dang it you gotta pay me more i can't afford right.
2: a car <laughs> right. um and that's what happened in the 70s uh um and could be repeated um i think there's more risk um today because you're starting from such a cheap money uh, proposition uh, um and there's so much cash out there that, that uh, there's probably more risk of of um, an overheated economy.
1: Yeah, and and relating to that, Mike, we've got a big potential infrastructure spending, etc. You know, another company you've been involved with there in Omaha's Kiwit, uh, yep. likely or at least intuitively from the outside, a beneficiary of infrastructure spending. Um, but you don't need to talk about Kiwit. We just talk about specifically the infrastructure business and sort of the government spending. Does that keep this inflation engine going further or longer sort of pushes this out? Because, you know, if you get a shortage of workers, you know, a guy who's driving a truck has to cross the country, doesn't get to see his family, you know, six nights a week. He's going to get offered a construction job in town. He's going to take that and it's going to produce more pressure there, etc.
2: We definitely don't have enough of a uh, trained workforce yeah. to... Um, put all the money to work that's being uh, talked about in the short run, right? Yeah. But a couple of things happen there. I think if you actually do build a better road, people spend five nights on, out rather than six and productivity increases, right? Because you've got a better uh, infrastructure and we're not competitive, I don't believe, on a world global basis with some of the uh, um, economies that we're gonna have to compete with, specifically China, um, but others as well who are, are doing a better job of investing in their infrastructure. I do think the infrastructure actually is an investment that will generate a return. Okay. Will we build a few bridges to nowhere? Yeah, probably, and, and that'll be wasteful. But overall, I think that actually makes sense. The, the expansion of the entitlement programs is, is a much riskier proposition, I think, from a, uh, an economic perspective, because there's no increased productivity that comes from that. There might be increased consumption. Um, And, and, you know, for those who um, need better medical care, need better quality food and more of it, I mean, I got no problem with that. But there is uh, an element that probably reduces productivity uh, as a result. And and I think that's, there's some danger in that.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely there is. Uh, Do you ever think about sort of debt levels at the national level, Mike? I mean, sort of our country? You you know, I
2: think there is a tipping point, right? Where a combination of of actual debt and the present value of the entitlement debt. Um, I'm going to start collecting my social security in a month here because I have to. But um,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: anyway, there's a tipping point Which triggers, I think, probably unstoppable kind of inflation, Mm -hmm. which can then devalue our currency. And I'm not a currency person at all or don't know much about it, frankly. But I do know you can lose control of the value of your currency if you've got too much debt. And you could write the history, I'm sure, of countries who have started out borrowing money. Yep. Ended up in a lot of trouble.
1: Yeah, yeah, look, I mean, Weimar, Germany, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, at a point to three, very simple examples. There was, a, it was actually a common recipe, right, right? Which is deficit spending using borrowed money, <laughs> yeah. right? So there, you got to start with that. So you have, yeah. and you have too much debt. So it's not just that you're borrowing, but you have a high elevated level. And then it, it, I would say, at least in those examples, oftentimes it's the currency that gives at the same time as the debt levels. The US is different we have a reserve currency, the world, at least for the next, I don't know, yeah. number five, 10, 15 years, there's no risk to, I mean, I think right. the world, the dollar is the dollar and there's no real legitimate competitor to that. I don't know any business leader. I suspect if I were to, to ask you, Mike, you uh, you know, you're involved with uh, a lot of businesses. You got to park some cash overnight. Would you put it at the people's bank of China overnight for, for just a day?
0: No,
1: <laughs> yeah. no. Right, we know that. Okay, Michael, you're gonna. The Putin is guaranteeing. Uh, ruble-denominated debt will be good, money good tomorrow morning. You're gonna put it there? No. And so there's no place to put it, right? So the dollar re- reigns supreme for basic reserve currency status now.
2: Yeah, it's harder, to, it's harder. to see that. Um, well, it's impossible, I guess, if you look out thirty or forty years, though. So. Um, and and that. You know, the, the presumption, I think, could, could cause us some problems if, yep. if, if we don't think about that. Now, you know, today, I think we have good reach uh, in many of our businesses that, that get a lot of uh, um, revenue around the world, uh, yep. denominated number of currencies. So it's probably not as big a risk, but it's still there. Yep. Um, yep. Got it. All right. All so chance I'm gonna... Of a big problem. Let's put it that
1: way. So, Mike, I've got a couple of questions that people have texted me. So I'm going to send read one of them here, which was: Does does Mike have any opinion or thoughts around voting systems, given his experience there, and in light of what transpired, at least in the media of accusations relating to the integrity of them?
2: So, when we say voting systems, I think it's it's good to look at it as as in three pieces. Uh, one you know, prior to tabulation, tabulation, and post-tabulation. In the tabulation business, which is the business that we're in, I think there's no fraud. There is no cyber penetration. These systems are very safe and very accurate. And that's us and our competitors. Before the ballot is tabulated, there is room for problems, uh, both in in the uh, chain of custody of that ballot, uh, especially if it's mailed and returned by mail, um, counted in in, in remote centers and so forth. So there is some risk uh, and and there's also cyber risk in the penetration of our voter registration systems and poll books and, and so forth. So there's more risk prior to tabulation, I think, I don't think there's much fraud out there, but there's risk in it. Yeah. Post-tabulation is kind of an interesting and, and I think fairly new risk because typically the uh, county commissioner would report to the television station at, and it'd be on the 10 o'clock news and everybody would say, well, the election's over, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Today, uh, first of all, that information might not be known because the ballots might not even all be there, might not be all counted, and so forth. And there is some remote risk uh, because those transmissions from the election commissioner to the media, um, if they were ever intercepted or disrupted, and there was a false report at the 10 o'clock news, and then it, it was corrected the next morning, you can imagine... The conspiracy and and so forth. So, sure. Anyway, I, I think we're solid on tabulation. We got some risk prior to that and some risk after that. That'd be my uh, uh, response. Gotcha. There.
1: Gotcha. All right. Well, that's interesting. I one can only imagine it's going to be getting greater attention here, yeah. in 20, right, going forward. So, having even a framework. As it should.
2: I mean, it's it's the core of our democracy. Uh, so, it's really important.
1: Yep. Yep. Great. Uh, Mike, another question, which I think we hinted at, but let's ask it nonetheless, which is uh, the ESG and DEI imperatives in boardrooms are actually starting to drive change. Do you think these changes will be sustainable?
2: I think society is is, is constantly trying to improve. and And I'm just, I'm the optimist, right? I don't think we're trying to be worse people. I think we're trying to be better people. So I think these initiatives will get more and more traction um, for the right reasons. Um, And I also think they'll result in higher and higher profitability over time, Mm -hmm. not in the short run, but over time, because they'll put more focus on creating value. And that value will be returned by the consumers, whether they be businesses or individuals. So Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm optimistic. As you would expect, and and, yeah. and I think I think it'll help.
1: It's interesting, Mike, on the DEI front. I've always found this fascinating because uh, I mean, you know, from some of the work of mine I've shared with you that I've I mean, multi lens is literally something I've been re- writing about for decades. That right. every perspective is biased, limited, and incomplete. So. Let's put people around the table with different perspectives. Like that seems logical to me. You're going to make a better decision. You're going to navigate uncertainty there. It's so logical um, that to me, DEI sort of should be embedded by the, the business rationale, should almost pull it forward, if you will, because you're putting people around the table with different perspectives.
2: Yeah. It, it, I think there's two pieces to it. You know, we can fill the boxes with people, we also have to give them a voice. Yeah. And you know, one thing I struggle with is, you know, I got to keep my ears open too. I mean, we have to become better listeners as, as, as well. Yeah. Um, and, and I think uh, some of the events of the last year or so have impressed me with the fact that I'm not good enough at listening. Uh, and I hope, I hope that's true for all of us or many of us anyway, uh, who need to hear the truth in, in some of these voices that we really uh, maybe are tuning in now. Um, yeah. We'll, well,
1: see. well, it's interesting, Mike. I mean, the, the thing that was making its way through some of the circles I've had these conversations in was DEI isn't enough. You need to do DEIB, D-E-B, right? And, and that B is belonging. It's not enough to have a diverse group right. or have equity involved or including people including people that don't feel like they belong. They don't get a voice at the table. They aren't heard. That's the, you're just checking a box. That's not right. helpful.
2: Right. Now, people have to find a home, uh, whether it's in our communities or in our companies or in our country um, uh, in order to be um, included in, in the prosperity Yeah. and, and, and we got work to do there, a lot actually.
1: Yeah, and so Mike, how do you deal with this? Given you're in the part of the country that maybe doesn't have as much diversity, perhaps than some of the other parts of the country. I'll phrase that. That's my phrasing of uh,
2: of the question. Yeah. So, so we always start out with an apology for that, which I think is is long as a starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think understanding the deficiency that causes is, is that, is this right starting point. Um, and if we understand that there is a bigger world out there, yeah. not just in the U S but beyond, it helps us. And if we don't believe that, then we don't understand that we're competing with Vietnam or we're competing, you know, with, Austin, um, Texas, right? Which seems to be, well, I think it is on the rise and should be, I mean, a great combination of, of strengths. So I think awareness is a start. And then, um, you know, without apology, you know, reaching out, uh, we can do it today remotely. I mean, we, are, we can be diverse, you know, without changing the, the, the makeup of our city, and that will eventually, I hope, change the makeup of our communities. We'll see. Yeah, yeah,
1: interesting. Um, running out of time, but I wanna ask, yeah, sure. ask one question. Uh, maybe we we'll us see if this turns up being the last question, Mike, but you know, you're also involved with universities um, and the pandemic's changed the dynamic of universities. You're, you're, um, you're spending some time over there at Creighton. Um, how has that changed? whether it's faculty recruiting, et cetera, from your perspective, I'm saying the governance of an educational institution, has it been disruptive? And more importantly, combine that with all the other stuff we have going on, is there any sort of dynamic that in, in, you know, in a couple of minutes or so you can give us insight as to sort of from that perspective at the top of a university's governing board, um, what are some changes we may see?
2: So, so this would be a personal perspective. I, I wouldn't speak to it as a board, Perspective. Um, and I'm recently retired from the grading board. So oh, okay. uh, um, we won't blame them or me for that. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that, that we're going to have more certificates and fewer degrees. I think we're going to have people who understand that they need to be self educated. Whether it's in class or outside of class, and whether it's from the time they're 18 to 21 or from 18 to 80, and as a, as consumers of people's learning, businesses—that's what we do. We concern concern what we consume, what people know. I think we're going to be looking at more certificate programs, and I think you're going to see our best universities kind of swallowing their uh, history and saying, we can help you develop this expertise, which might be in data analytics or robotics, or those are just two of the more popular, and provide certificate programs and not pretend that you're liberally educated. We're gonna challenge you to be liberally educated but you may have to do that yourself. Yeah. Um, so I, I see some real opportunities and some real threats to mm-hmm. uh, um, education. I do expect that a lot of the small liberal arts colleges are probably gonna go out of business, mm-hmm. um, which I regret. I, I graduated from one um, and, and I think that'll be too bad if they do, but, but um, there's some real, real change in, in, in education.
1: Yep. Yep. So I'm going to give you the last word, Mike. Uh, and I just ask that in this time of anxiety, et cetera, and all these challenges that you give us something hopeful or positive to think about as we uh, let you wrap this up, as we think about navigating uncertainty.
2: Well, I just start with the fact that that we're all so privileged and we have so much to be thankful for. And if we can start out with some sense of gratitude, I think that solves uh, uh, a lot of our problems. Uh, Problems because it makes us more willing to share and solve some of these social problems, which, which uh, diminish our ability to produce and, and go forward. So I'm I'm pleased with with the opportunities ahead, and, and I'm sure you ought to be too, Vikram. So thank you. Great. I well, thank you for asking me to join you today.
1: Oh, well, Mike, thank you. I, I feel uh, grateful to have you uh, in my uh, ecosystem and to be able to have right. these conversations regularly. So I, right. uh, I will look forward to seeing you next uh, next month here. So, All right,
0: Very yeah. good. Thank All right. You. thanks,
1: Mike. Appreciate your time. Bye. All
0: right, yep. bye-bye. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify.